0: Hello, thank you for joining me, Russell Brand, on Under the Skin. We've got an amazing episode with dear Khan, the activist, filmmaker, who's sort of talked a lot about extremists and personal experiences with extremists and finding the humanity with members of the Ku Klux Klan, white supremacists, jihadists. Her film credits include White Right Meeting the Enemy, 2017, where she hung out with white supremacists Islam's non-believers as the name suggests about uh, apostasy uh, Jihad the story of others sort of essentially films that humanise individualise and emphasise connection with w- w- people that you might regard as extreme issues won numerous awards and it was an amazing conversation I just want to let you know that I am at the Bristol Old Vic performing the one man Shakespeare show you'll like it get tickets on my website it's uh, at the Bristol Old Vic on the 19th 20th and 21st of November and it's at the Northampton Theatre Royal on the 4th 5th and 6th of December I'm developing it it's me doing sort of scenes from Shakespeare with audience members and doing monologues to tell the story of my life and talk about you know Shakespeare it's pretty good actually come and see me doing it this dear khan chat it got deep it got like quite intense it went on a lot longer than i'm than i intended it to we talked a lot about uh, misogyny feminism islam extremism the ongoing culture clash how to overcome prejudice and whether there's a possibility for a sort of I don't know, a kind of integrated transcendental experience that brings us all together. I found it intriguing and informative, beguiling and... I was well into it Check it out and uh, let me know what you think And remember to review this podcast It really helps me if you give it five stars Wherever the hell you listen to it Regardless of your true feelings Never connect to your true feelings That's the message Here's Under the Skin with Dear Khan Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category Is not a no, successful that, route yes, that's, that, that's exactly right We're in this era where it turns out We were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand, Under the Skin. Welcome to Under the Skin, dear Khan. You deliberately put yourself in very difficult situations. You famously made documentaries with the Ku Klux Klan, with jihadists, with white extremists. I mean, that would include the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, I think there's no way they would escape categorization uh, under that banner. Why do you do it?
1: I do it because I'm interested in why people do the things that they do, why people believe the things that they believe. I, With both those those groups of extremes that you're talking about, I, I think we all understand what they believe. I think we understand a lot about their ideology. We understand how horrible they are, right? Um, but there's always a human being behind all the rhetoric and behind all of uh, the chess beating uh, and the ideology. And I wanted to, I always want to get to that part. And, and and the reason I'm interested in that is not to excuse any of that behavior. It's not to normalize any of it, but it's just to try and get to the the beating heart of it. Because if if, I feel that if we get to the beating heart of it, then maybe we as the rest of society, maybe we can do a better job at resolving some of this.
0: So your perspective and your motivation is an optimistic one that you essentially believe that people that have extremist beliefs, however, those beliefs are resourced, whether it's uh, fundamentalism from an Islamic perspective or ethno-nationalism, you think that these are almost temporary fugues that human beings pass through. That they are not essential states, as you said. That you are interested in meeting the human being behind, the, 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 and you believe that human being is more truthful, more real, better than their group identity in each of these cases. I do
1: because what I've found in in doing all the films that I've done at this point is, the the whatever the the window I always call it sort of window dressing or whatever the brand is, that might be different. you know. So on the surface of it, 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 it's going to look different to most people when it comes to a jihadi versus a neo-Nazi. Well, these are completely opposing ideologies, completely different people, and therefore should be treated completely differently. But what I found is that the type of men that are attracted to these movements and the type of vulnerabilities that those men possess that are being preyed upon by people in a position to to misuse whatever vulnerabilities that these men have for their own political gains um, are the same. The, the psychological, the emotional, the, the social makeup of the, the guys across the spectrum, I have found actually to be really, really similar. Wh- whether it's you know a matter of, you know, searching for meaning, searching for belonging, searching for a sense of purpose, searching for a brotherhood, camaraderie, searching for just a way of coping with a very you know, quickly changing world, um, finding themselves to be insignificant, powerless. And then you have recruiters and you have these movements that are filling those voids actively and cynically actually filling those voids, not by accident, but actually by design. And I find that really troubling, but I also find that quite hopeful. Um, Because I think that these basic human needs, I mean, I'm searching and have been searching for all of these things that I've just listed as well. You know, it's just it manifests itself different for me than it does for these guys. And it's just for me, it's a matter of figuring out how do we satisfy these these needs for young people? How do we satisfy and address these vulnerabilities that, that young people have? And also, how do we confront the feelings of shame and humiliation and powerlessness that so many people feel before they become instrumentalized by our politicians and by populism?
0: So you found a, regardless of how superficially polarized the group identities of white supremacists or jihadists may seem that there's a kind of uniformity
1: Absolutely. So uh, Absolutely. Because because that the, these movements are meeting these young men, predominantly men. I mean obviously there are some women. Think that's important. I do. I think gender is a tremendous part of this. I think I think a sense of masculinity or a sense of sort of toxic masculinity, I think, is absolutely, absolutely essential to this, to both movements or to any kind of extremist movement. Um, and I think that's also systematically overlooked. I think the way that our media addresses extremists and I think the way that our politicians address extremism in in general I think is not very helpful. They constantly want to make it something exotic, something so impossible and monstrous because surely we can't do anything about this. These people are just hideous, they possess these hideous views and let's just sign them all off and that's not the truth. The truth is they're all operating out of really basic needs and those needs are not being met in their life, in their immediate family life or in the wider society. That says more about us as a society than it does about these men. And so I'm interested in that. I'm interested in, in, in finding and excavating what those needs are, what those vulnerabilities are. Look, extremists of any kind of stripe and, and, and um, any form flourishes in, um, in vacuums. Right, so you have Hamas and Hezbollah and all these kind of you know, big names that we've heard of. They provide in, in circumstances and environments where social services do not exist Education does not, you know, uh, uh, does not exist, uh, 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 healthcare does not exist. They are filling those voids. So whether it's political voids, it is economic voids, or it is social and emotional and psychological voids in the lives of people, these extremist groups, whatever their brand is, are fulfilling those, knowing what these lacks and these voids are in people's lives. So why do they know that? Why are they doing that and we are not? Why is our political system not addressing the social and economic and the political grievances that our young people have? Yes. It doesn't I mean, ex- and again, it doesn't excuse the way that they're choosing to
0: express that. I think we can say at the beginning that no one's is seeking no. to excuse the behaviour of extremists. Um, but I, And I feel like possibly we have really similar world views uh, based on what you've said to me so far i'm interested in hearing a little more about your personal experience when we talk in a sort of a vague way about extremism um you know it, it 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 seems abstract what's it like when you encounter it in an individual tell me about some of your experiences say for example with white supremacists and what that's like on a personal level how did it uh Tally with your expectations, and were you challenged in ways that were surprising? And give me sort of personal examples of it, if you don't mind.
1: So, so when I decided to make this film, I uh, the the so I've had experiences of, of of racism most of my life. I mean, was wh- you
0: actually a Norwegian person? I know it doesn't look like no, you it, don't but still yeah, feel that. So no. I'm just that's my <laughs> own inadvertent expectations of a Norwegian person. Right. I don't think oh that'll be a Muslim person, right, or a right. dark person. I think blonde,
1: blue eyed, exactly. Mm. Yeah, so you can only imagine what it was like to grow up in the sea of the blonde and the blue-eyed, right? Looking like this. Um, So yes, I was born and raised in Norway. My father is Pakistani, my mother is Afghan. Um, Come from a very, very supportive, very liberal, very kind of eccentric uh, home. My earliest memories um, is... Uh, of of you know me playing on the on the carpet and and there being cigarette smoke and you know coffees and teas being drank and 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 conversations about politics and 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 uh, global affairs and human rights being talked about theater art activism being spoken about which included men and women from the parts of the world that my parents come from so my very very early memories was about politics matter the personal matters in fact the personal is is the political um and also that men and women both engage in in these very complex conversations uh my father had a lot of experiences of racism in Norway um so his sort of dream was for his children to to Make it big and to become famous and, and, and to surpass whatever limitations there might be on somebody who looks like this in a country like that through working harder than everybody else, through becoming more um, uh, important in some ways than he was able to accomplish in his own life.
0: Which, uh, what I from what I understand is relatively typical of the immigrant it is. experience in yeah. some cases.
1: Yeah, so, so exactly. So you know, he wanted something better for his children than, than what he was able to to you know uh, live in his own and experience in his own life. So um, you know, and and and. I remember him dragging me to these uh, public demonstrations against racism, actually, when I was the earliest one, I remember was about six years old. And I mentioned this in the film as well. And I remember also having conversations with him in later years in in Norway and him saying, look, you just have to give it time. This this stuff, this hatred that these types of people hold for people like us, it will go away. You just you you just got to be patient. You just got to hang in there and it'll be okay." And, you know, the the fact of the matter is, you know, decades later, I'm still sitting here. We've got Donald Trump. We've got, you know, what's happening in in Italy, in France, in everywhere. You're seeing this just wave of of populism, you know, colored with with racism, just overtaking every space that we now know. Um, So the reality is that it's not going away Uh, and you can't just resign it and, and relegate it to, to time. It's We're going to have to play an active role in this. So uh, a couple of years ago, I did an interview with the BBC. Um, I consider it to be a really bland interview with the BBC where uh, we talked about our multicultural society in the UK and diversity and how we find our way through that and how we can find a better way of living together. And in that, I said that Parents like mine who've come to Western countries, um, and for them to think that they can reestablish what they've left behind in these countries is madness. You know, it's, it's they're going to have to leave the past behind. You know, we're in a different place now, in a different time now, and, and that's just what it is. Similarly, white people in the countries that our parents have come, true, come to are also, also going to have to leave behind what they expect from their country in terms of what it used to be like pre, Mm. you know, immigration. And the reality is, and whatever loss is involved in that, you know, we can address that loss and and we can even, you know, I don't know, we can even mourn that loss if we need to, which I mean, I understand that there is a loss. I I get that. But the reality is we're here now. And so what do we do? You know, either we we get get rid of each other, which to me is not an option that I can, tolerate or think is makes any sense or we try to figure out living together truly truly living together truly truly being in a relationship with each other and what that means anyway so i did this interview and one of the sentences that i said is you know britain's never going to be white again or never going to be only white again And this sentence and this interview basically went viral. I ended up on so many violent racist websites, particularly in in America, saying that I've committed uh, white genocide by saying that, you know, these countries are never going to be white ever again, blah, blah, blah. And the reactions that I got to that, I mean, the amount of death threats uh, and the severity of the threats that I got was so intense that the BBC even got in touch with me and said, look, what we're getting for you is very, very dark Um there was another hijabi woman actually as well who who had said certain things, but they said, for you, it's even worse. So you, you actually really need to take this seriously, get the police involved, all this stuff. I was laughing at it at the beginning because I've lived with death threats most of my life anyway. Mm. My first half of my life, I got a lot of death threats from uh, Islamic extremists because I'm a woman and because I say the things that I say publicly, because I do the work that I do publicly, because I speak about women's rights, because I speak about human rights and I speak about freedom of expression and... All of that, I've lived with um, death threats from, from that side of it. And then because I'm a person of color, I also then, and speak about diversity and unity and how we and do this thing together, I also get death threats from white supremacists. Um, so I decided that I choose not to be afraid of these people. I'm going to choose not to follow what it is that they want me to and choose not to react in a way that they intend for me to react. So rather than running and hiding or hating these people, I'm going to go and see if I can sit with them, meet with them, talk to them and see, is it possible for you to hate as easily in person as it is to do behind a keyboard or as it is to do you know, on the phone? Um and also is it possible for me to sit with people like that? People that I've been afraid of most of my life, people that I've also hated most of my life. You know, can we sit down? Can we recognize each other's humanity? Is that possible? And is it possible for me to hold on to my humanity in the process of doing that? What am I am I what am I why are you breathing like that?
0: So I'm processing <laughs> all of this information. Okay. I think that the thing you said about um On that interview, uh, Britain will never be white again. I suppose that's, uh, even though it's sort of obviously true because time is irreversible, I suppose what might be resonant and challenging about that is that, to some degree or another, people have a relationship with their country, with their nation. These constructs have been put in place, augmented, fortified, reiterated throughout time in order to manage population. Absolutely. And then as the needs of that nation state require immigration, diversification, the population that have been grown on certain myths of what their country is and what their role within that country is have to adapt at a speed that they are not able I to... So. I agree you which is why that. I'm
1: saying that uh, there is a loss in there yeah that I actually do recognize and and I don't know what we need to do in order to address that loss I, I don't know if we you need don't to know. no I I don't know if, if if we need to because the thing is that has to be let go right because it's it's the past now. It's mm. it's 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 gone. It but but we me- can recognize the loss, and and I don't know. Maybe we need to have like a a ceremony of of you know letting go of that. I don't know. Whatever whatever that transition needs to be.
0: Well, I think you're right, but I think it's unlikely that there would be a ceremony because that language doesn't culturally exist It Doesn't matter. No, but that doesn't matter because it doesn't because it's
1: up to us. It doesn't matter if it exists or not. We can still try and aware of that. But I'm just saying that in a
0: secular culture, there is there the only rituals we have are commodified rituals Uh, like sporting rituals, and and which is
1: part of the reason why we're here.
0: Yeah, and how would and uh, (laughs) traditionally? Yeah, uh, see, I can see where these how these problems come about because nation is. Esconced in tradition, religion, esconced in tradition, there is a kind of nostalgia, an evident nostalgia that gets that's easy to, as you have already stated, cynically inflame in order to maneuver people into extremist positions. Now like when we're talking about, I, I obviously uh, admire you tremendously for your willingness, ability and for the fact that you actually have gone and confronted people and talked about it directly um, and, and perhaps we'll come back to this idea of what a ceremony or ritual of mourning and conciliation would look like. So yeah. we'll, we'll put a pin in that for a moment, how we're essentially going to establish utopia through ritual. Let's move hmm. on into how that how the inciting is incident of this conflagatory interview with the BBC led you to want to directly confront people that hated you and that you yourself said you'd hated. Talk to me a little bit about that experience.
1: So I started obsessively reaching out to uh, white supremacist um, activists and also groups in, in America in particular because that's where I did get in touch with some people in the UK but in the UK because of the laws that we have around hate speech and you know so so it's, it's harder for people here to be uh, open about their views, whereas in America, because of the First Amendment, you know, m- most of them are much more comfortable speaking about it out loud. So I thought, OK, well, let me go there. And also most of the the vitriol and, and the threats that I was receiving actually came from America. So wow. let me do that. Um, I would say about 99 percent of the people that I got in touch with uh, or tried reaching out to not interested. Some of, I mean, most of them ignored me and the people that did respond to me said, no, thank you. Because I was very open. I said, look, I'm a woman of color. I'm, I'm a Muslim. I'm this, 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 this. This is what's happened. And this is what I'm interested in doing. And I'm actually sincerely interested in listening. I actually sincerely, I, I actually want to understand. Uh, so I'm going to leave my baggage at the door. Believe it or not, I I, I, I will really try to do that. Um and still not interested. Um, one guy wrote back and said, well, you know, yeah, maybe, no, far possibly, but yeah, no. Uh, and this was Jeff Scoop, and he was the leader of the National Socialist Movement, which is the largest neo-Nazi organization in America. And I, I, I was really excited. I thought, okay, well, you know, one in a million, so pff, so there is a chance, <laughs> right? Uh, so I just started hur- just hounding him and just writing him again and again and again and again I said, look, give me five minutes, give me 10 minutes, give me whatever it is that you can give me. Just just let's sit down. You, you can tell me to piss off. Doesn't really matter. But let's just just do this. Eventually he agreed. And he said, uh, look, you get one hour. You're going to come to Detroit, you know, come to the whatever whatever motel. Um, and after an hour, you go away. I was like, OK, yay, fabulous. Great. I can do that uh went uh and of course you know just minutes before he's about to walk in suddenly all this stuff starts rushing through my head of going you know my goodness i'm in america now you know these guys are armed you know what if he brings weapons with him what if he brings guys with him you know it's just me and a colleague you know i mean i can't afford like security and all that kind of stuff so i was just going oh shit. you know you're doing it now but what if this just goes horribly wrong uh and he shows up and he was alone he did everything that he said um and we talked for an hour, and then we talked for another four hours. Um, and at the end of that, he said, um, "Look, you know, we're about to go to this uh, rally in Charlottesville, and uh, you're very welcome to join us."
0: <laughs> so sort of quite polite and very charming. Polite. No, no, really, uh, really.
1: Uh, you know, it really. And I was going, "Okay, great. Uh, yeah, I would uh, love did you to think do of that." Him by
0: this stage, did you like him? I liked him. It, so that it, sounds
1: really counterintuitive, right? Right, for a person like me to sit there and, you know, somebody who considers me to be a shit skin and a, and a, and a you know, degenerate and all, all did kinds he say of...
0: stuff like that during the conversation? No,
1: because he wasn't able to. Uh, so what I did do is that I, I told him all those things. I described myself in those terms because that's how I'd been described by people in the past and also in the threats that I'd received. So I kept using these words about myself just to his face. We sat this far apart from each other. Um, And every time I would use a word like that about myself, he would just squirm and be really uncomfortable. And then I just started laughing and going, look, I mean, obviously, this isn't the first time that you're hearing words like this. I'm assuming you use words like this. And if you don't, then people around you certainly do. So why are you so uncomfortable? Uh, And he just couldn't answer, but he was really uncomfortable. And I said, do you not want me to use language like that? And he's like, no, I don't. And so, you know, so part of that question that I had, is it possible to hate in up close and personal? Um, and face to face, you know, obviously it wasn't possible for him. It is possible for many other people, but it wasn't possible for him. What does
0: that make you think?
1: Um, that something else is possible. That, that, that also my judgments against people like him, my um, prejudices... And my kind of very flat caricature that I carry in my mind and my heart about men like that is also incorrect. So it says again, it says something about me as well, um, you know. But we sp- and I asked him. I said, "Look, why? First of all, why why have we sat here for five hours and and just talked?" Um, and he said, "Well, you know, no one's really asked me the kind of questions that you've asked me, and no one's really spoken to me in the way that you've spoken to me." He said, "I've done loads and loads of interviews." But I've never, you know, come across somebody like you before. And he said, also, I acknowledge the fact that there's a sincerity in what in the worldview that you hold. He said, I disagree with it. I disagree with the with what you feel, which is that the world should be plural and diverse and rich and, you know, unified, you know, all of this. Um, but he said, I respect that you sincerely feel that. And he said, I also respect that you're an activist. He said, our worldview is completely different, but I respect your sincerity. Um, And he said, you believe in something. He said, which whereas most of the people that I've spoken to don't believe in anything, they just wanna come in here and get a few quotes and then they piss off. And he said, and you're sitting here trying to convince me (laughs) that we can live together. Oh my God, of course we can live together. You can imagine it, can you see it, can you feel it? Um, So he said, I I, I get that. I will, of course, continue to work against your worldview, but I respect that.
0: Um, So whilst you in that moment experienced an aspect of that man that was probably surprising to both of you in that his uh, prejudices couldn't survive, in your terms, human contact, which for me suggests that there is a deeper truth present in that man. That abides by a code that isn't present in their sort of rhetoric of hatred. That's like very appealing to someone like me that believes in the possibility of positive change. How, uh, what do you think? ultimately the impact was, say, for example, in that case, do you think there was a lasting impression? Do you think that that man's perspective was ultimately changed? Do you think that when he uses language that is uh, invective or dark language, that in the future, he might think, "Oh, more had that nice chat with that woman?
1: I think so. He's still the leader of that group. Oh, he stayed uh, with uh, the old stayed. National Socialists. He did. <laughs> he did. Um, so he stayed. Uh, we are in contact with each other still. Uh, And I'm going to continue being in touch with him. have
0: small talk with him? Like about, oh, yeah. Yeah, about films, about sex,
1: about, yeah, yeah. What do you mean about sex? Well, so. And films, obviously, I'm interested. um, (laughs) So um, when he said, you know, you can come to Charlottesville, uh, I I went to Detroit and then uh, he was going to drive to Charlottesville, which is a nine hour drive. So I filmed him and and was stuck with him in a car for about nine hours. And, And he's, you know, giving me all this, can I swear on yes. this? Okay, okay. So you're giving me all this kind of his his shit, his kind of you know talking points, his kind of you know usual thing, mm. his talking points, uh, which is incredibly boring. Right. Right. You get that. You, I mean, we all know what Nazis believes. Mm. You know, it's it's just I, I'm not interested. So you're giving not me this for nine hours. Not of for nine. hours too much. That's too much supremacy. Uh, So I just started asking him About other stuff Uh, I started asking him About his family You know About you know Does he have children All this other kind of stuff And then about sex And
0: Well how do you segue into that You just do You just have to
1: No you just have to And he was absolutely horrified and he had one of his guys in the in the car as well who was very very offended what were you to him me? like
0: monogamy for example were you saying well do you believe in monogamous he relationships he doesn't or were you ca-
1: no he yeah. doesn't yeah no we did talk about that oh. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, anyway. So we, I mean, we talked about that. Talked about, you know, has he ever, you know, uh, thought about, you know, like, you know, black women? Has he ever, you know, oh. no, no I, I mean, I completely had to well, how did go that for. Go? Didn't go that well. That's okay, because I just wanted to break his kind of thing, his, his, his spiel. His
0: yeah. See so if you can crack the matrix through more primal <laughs> energies, because yeah. however, wh- however committed one is to sort of racism or any exclusive worldview. There are forces present in the anatomy of individuals that are beyond that, beyond and more powerful. I exactly,
1: would say. exactly, and 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 very much the case for him as well. And and I asked him, you know, several weeks later. I said uh, in our last interview, and I said, look, I feel like I've been like an annoying sister to you, and and kind of been pestering you and pushing your buttons, and you've sort of allowed me to do that, and you've you've sort of put up with me, uh, and been actually really patient um you know how do you feel about that and he goes well you know and i said you know i'm calling you i'm saying that you know i've been like a sister to you how does that feel he's like well that's you know well it's kind of sweet um and i said okay anything else you know you want to you know do you, i mean do you feel like that too do you feel like you know so uh, an irritated brother you know uh you know nothing nothing um
0: so you think he fancies you a little bit
1: no uh, no no i i i think he does consider me to be an irritating sister but but i also recognize the fact that he can't really say that out loud and he can't say it on camera um but he i absolutely get along with him and i i don't want to ruin his I mean, I I realise this is a public thing. I mean, I don't want to ruin his kind of public... His mystique as a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. But but I like you don't want
0: to undermine his Naziness. He don't want to undermine your woman of colour identity. The two of you are protecting each other in this ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) twist.
1: The thing is, I... I like him. He's a he's actually so when a cut decent film, guy.
0: Do you cut him to? I've seen bits of it. Do you mm. do, you, do you cut it to make him look good? Do you think? Oh, because like say that your editorial requirements no. are to be what honest or to make a sort of a sensational and interesting no. film.
1: No, so I have no requirements because I, I'm I sort of I just do what's important to me and and then. ITV is, is who, who ends up taking the films. They they sort of just take it for what it is. Uh-huh. Uh, and in terms the way that he was cut, because I've shown it to him, because it's uh, and I've done saying? this with every film that I've done. I always show it to people after the fact to make sure that they are feel that they've been represented accurately. Mm. And his comment was, uh, he thinks it's too short. Right. He thinks the film should have been but too yeah, long.
0: He's in that car nine hours banging. Yeah, on where about, did that go? No, and that wasn't
1: even included in the film. <laughs> Because, I mean, there's only so much you can include. But anyway, um, but he he, and also a lot of the other guys that I met with uh, did feel that they'd been represented accurately. And that actually means a lot to me, because regardless of the fact that I disagree with them and, and find their worldview and their politics to be disgusting, still doesn't mean that I need to respect uh, their their need to be represented fairly.
0: Yeah, your own integrity. Exactly. I can see exactly. Important. And, and
1: so he felt that that, that was accomplished.
0: That's good. Yeah. What about then? one lad say, oh, I don't want to be a Nazi anymore. You've put yeah. me off it.
1: Yeah. So t- actually, yeah. What, one of them who was, uh, who's been in the white power movement for over a decade, uh, Brian Culpepper is his name. When I was editing the film, uh, he called me up and he said, look, uh, I've decided to leave. Uh, I haven't even told Commander, they say. They have like a m- military structure to their hierarchy, to their organization. He said, I haven't even told Commander, which is Jeff. <laughs> uh, yet. Sounds
0: more important when you say as a commander when you say Does, Jeff I know something you just send in a text
1: exactly exactly and he said you haven't even told him yet but you know I wanted you to know and, and this is what's happening so I actually included that in the film and and he didn't leave because of our interac- interactions completely but part but it was part of the reason and he was very clear about the fact that that was a part of the reason and and he had he witnessed me being treated very very badly by oh, some of the what people happened? well one of the well I mean a lot of very difficult uh, encounters happen but one of the things that he was present at um, I remember going to a compound uh, in the mountains of Virginia where there were about 70-75 guys from different neo-Nazi groups after Charlottesville actually and they were bruised and you know uh, had a lot of weapons I mean weapons that are kind of military grade weapons Um, very angry very kind of riled up very drunk uh, and I remember going there with Brian and Brian said, oh, it's fine. You can film there, bring your camera. It's fine. Some of them have agreed to do some interviews. It's, it's perfectly fine. And I remember my colleague, it was just the two of us. One of my colleagues, he goes, you know, just leave the camera. Let's go down. Let's have a look first. If it's fine, we'll come back, get the camera and then it's fine. I was like, no, no, no. He says it's cool. It's, it's, it's OK. He's like, no, just trust me. Just leave it. And we start working, walking down this dirt road and they start gathering and start shouting, you know, who the fuck are you? i can't say that mm. okay who the fuck are you are you the fucking media are you fucking jew are you fucking this are you and i was going on and they're and they're picking up their massive massive like like weapons uh and i just you know have to put our hands up and go you know no you know he said, he said it's okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm with him <laughs> which didn't really matter at the time uh, you know, come down, you know, and they keep shouting and getting right in my face, blowing cigarette in my face, you know, the fuck are you this? You what kind of fucking Muslim are you? Are you fucking Shi? Are you Sunni? Are you this? Blah, blah, blah. Why isn't your head covered if you're a fucking Muslim? Um, and I remember just thinking, and I'm looking at my phone. That's the only thing I had. And I remember it saying, you know, no signal. And I remember thinking, you know, if they want to, they can put a bullet in my head and they can just put me in the ground right here. And nobody would know because I hadn't told any of my colleagues back in London that I was filming or doing any of this. And I just remember this is if I make it out of here, just just, you know, let me make it out of here alive. Um, And eventually did. Uh, And I remember going back to the motel and contacting my colleague back in London and going, look, you know, this is what I'm doing. Uh, here's the number for my mother. Here's the number for my brother. You know, if anything happens to me, you know, if I if you don't hear from me every two days, then you just contact them and tell them something's happened. Um, but Brian witnessed this, and he also witnessed other encounters like that, um, and he felt that we'd become friends. Mm. As well, because I was respectful to him. He was always respectful to me. And we were in Charlottesville together. I was pepper sprayed by counter protesters, which is bizarre, you know, because. Counter I, protesters. Yeah, you know, the anti-fascist protesters, you know, which, which I mean, I've gone to so many Nazi protests, you know, through my life and I'm always on that side. So I'm kind of looking at people going, I'm on your side. Just I'm just filming these guys don't. And of course, you get pepper sprayed. Um
0: That's ironic. Isn't it? After you've gone to all this trouble, Isn't it's it? the anti-fascists that end up... That
1: actually get you. I know. I know. And then Brian, you know, so when he called me, he said, look, I've got to tell you something. And then he said, look, I've decided to leave. You know, I, I can no longer deal with this. It, it doesn't make any sense to me anymore. And I said, why doesn't it make any sense? And also in the course of the film, I'd asked him because, you know, all these guys keep talking about a white ethno-state. That's what they're going to mm. establish. Mm. And in that white ethno state and we talked about this a lot, that means people like me are not welcome. And I said, "Well you know would you be willing to deport somebody like me? Would you be willing to deport me?" And he and he really struggled with it at the time and then he eventually said, "Well, yes, I would have to do that." Um, and so when he left, I said, "You know look, so why, why have you left and why is this difficult for you to reconcile now?" And he said, "Well, you know because we've become friends." Mm. And I said, and, and, and why does that matter? And he said, well, you know, it's it's I care about you and, you know, you care about me. And it's and he said, you know, I've never spoken to a Muslim before you. He feels very strongly about
0: Muslims, but he's never actually met anyone before. Like 100 percent of the Muslims he's met.
1: Exactly, he does. He do, and, he, and he goes, you know, you're the first one I've met and now I'm interested in meeting more people who are different from me. And he said, so I, I, I've i decided to leave. And he said, and I was very, I didn't like how you were treated. And I also asked him, you know, would you, so would you deport me now? And he said, no, I couldn't. And why not? Because you're my friend.
0: So these experiences, dear, have in a way confirmed your yeah. intuitive belief that fascism or extremism will not withstand... Human contact. Yes. Yeah, human connection. Yeah. So it will not.
1: I mean, he, he, but I don't want to... You feel to...
0: it's kind of like an illusion. It's a temporal state. It's like a virus of the mind. It's something that, that it is there is an antidote it. to it. And I think so. And that antidote is love and connection. Sounds like a kind of hippie thing, but that's but it's it's true. in a way...
1: It, it's true. And, and, and it does sound like a hippie thing, but, but I've this film proves that. I mean, yeah. a, another man in the film, he, he wears a massive swastika on his chest. And I met him at Charlottesville as well. And he's very angry, very aggressive. He has harassed his local mosque for for ages. Um, and when I film with him, you know, he was throwing out uh, anti-Jewish uh, flyers in his his neighborhood and in, in Florida as well. And, you know, he he's an ex-military guy and he joined the military because he's he hates Muslims, basically. So he thought that that was a great way of, of addressing that. Um and right, we, there and are
0: foreign policies that are somewhat <laughs> in alignment with this <laughs> hatred I'm feeling. <laughs>
1: exactly. So he, he felt that exactly that's how I can express. And we spent a lot of time together as well. And he ended up using the same word, you know, I consider you to be a friend. May I ask and you he left.
0: He's left. You're ruining the Nazis. Um, you're diminishing them one by one. Do you, what do you think? Is but the it's re- possible. Of course, I agree with you. What do you think is the relationship between the ki- uh, more sanitised version of Islamophobia or anti-Islamic uh, sentiment, as expressed through the political agency of powers such as the UK or United States? and what we term extremism do you not see an intrinsic relationship between them uh, like the guy joining the army in order to express his islamophobia which was probably inculcated through media which has ultimately the same agenda of those military organizations to designate another other as target of hatred to help organize and manage a population as a simple more anecdotal example uh, the recent photographs of tommy robinson with some squaddies at a petrol station why wouldn't young men in the military be atta- attracted to a visible vocal patriot who's very supportive of the army particularly when they belong to an organization Who's you know like uh, uh, part of their job is going to involve sort of oppressive activity and um, you know violence in foreign countries and it's going to sort of require certain attitudes that are not at odds with patriotism and separatism and
1: I think there's absolutely a connection there's absolute synergy between the politics that our leaders conduct and the feelings and the resentments and the fears of men like this, they're absolutely, I think, directing, misdirecting this anger that, the, and some of the anger, as I said earlier, is, is legitimate. But the, the avenue through which our politicians are channeling that anger is absolutely destructive. And, and when it comes to the military side of this, I mean, I would say easily, easily about 80, 85% of all the men throughout the various groups that I met with uh, are ex-military guys. And oh. I and I find that really, really telling and really interesting. And I mean, one of the training camps that I went to, I remember one guy, very, very uh, kind of unstable, you know, kept following me around uh, as I was filming some other people and, and kept saying, you know, the best thing about being in Afghanistan was, was getting to kill ragheads, like getting paid. Uh, to kill ragheads like you the fact that there's such a high percentage of ex-servicemen joining the white supremacist movement I think is a, is a real cause for concern and I think the fact that people don't really speak about that is really worrying. I, I think somebody needs to make a film about that That's
0: curious isn't it because I suppose like most people I have a good degree of admiration for people that are willing to sacrifice their lives in order to belong to services whether that's you know the army I, I kind of feel like it's brave to join the army I can't get beyond that but national identity uh, has certain ingredients which you are saying are I- I- exploitable.
1: It's exploitable, but also I think most of these men who have served return broken, right, traumatized, and also feel that they've been betrayed by the country that they served. They feel that they were sold a lie. And so some of the men that I talk to are actually very, very anti-America. bizarrely, even though they're part of these kind of nationalist, you know, ethno-nationalist groups. It is really interesting. They would like to see the American flag burned. They would like to see the American system and politics dismantled because it is uh, completely perpetuating a lie and asking for the lives of poor and working-class Americans for nothing, nothing true, nothing real, nothing meaningful in return. And also, you know, The military breaks you down and then, you know, rebuilds you and asks for your absolute uh, loyalty in return for order, in return for certainty, in Mm. return for significance, in return for brotherhood and camaraderie and a greater purpose in life. So when they leave all of that, they still need that. And a lot of these groups, as I said earlier, the National Socialist Movement is actually structured around a military hierarchy. So their group, for example, is attracting a lot of ex-military guys because they are able to satisfy a lot of those those needs that these men um, are now searching for. Um, you know, it's, this sounds maybe a little bit strange, but, you know, in England, how a lot of the the press, when they talk about young Muslims returning from Syria, they keep talking about returnees and yes. how dangerous they are. Yes. And they've seen bad things. They've done bad things. And, you know, so what does that mean for when they come back? I completely understand a lot of those concerns. But at the same time, we have military guys who have also seen bad things, who've done bad things, wow. who are trained for, for you know certain purpose, coming back to the UK with no real support, no economic uh, infrastructure around them, no way of reintegrating them into society, no way of, of making their lives purposeful and meaningful and productive in, in civilian life. Those returnees we don't speak about And the danger of those returnees we don't speak about. And and I'm not saying that that ex-military men are inherently dangerous, but what makes them dangerous is their sense of alienation, their anger and their resentment at their own government that these extremist groups are preying on and are actively recruiting and using for training for this ultimate upcoming uh, race war. Oh the old they race think, war. Exactly. There's an upcoming race war exactly. is there. Oh great. Oh great. Yeah, didn't you know didn't you get the memo?
0: <laughs> I didn't I was nervous on sports day. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I don't know how I'm going to cope with a race war. <laughs> now, like but you have not um focused your uh, ire and uh, insatiable lust for death threats solely <laughs> on the <laughs> white supremacist community. You also have um examined jihadists and uh extremists from uh, the, the from an islamic background yeah. so um, can i ask you a little bit for like in, in the uk at the moment what sort of uh, it seems perhaps the apex in the conflicts between let's call it the white working class and ethno nationalist movements and uh, muslim immigrant immigrant population and uh, the sort of concerns uh, that people have around uh, muslim or asian grooming gangs what, what's your opinion on that?
1: My opinion on that is that um, these are real and difficult and ugly parts of what it means to live together. You know, when, when a lot of different people from all kinds of different parts of the world have sort of been shoved together on this island us trying to make that work is really, really hard and there are ugly sides of that and there are really beautiful sides of that and and the grooming gangs, for example, is one example of the ugliness of that uh, and also how the girls who were working class, who were completely ignored and, and, and not believed by the authorities is something really important, worth looking at. Um, but what I think about this is... The fact that the, the extreme right is pouncing on these issues, I think, is really telling of the fact that the rest of us are not really taking up these issues and having these incredibly uncomfortable conversations of what it means to live together, of what it means to have these various uh, complex and, and uh, unpleasant uh views Uh, within our communities so i think if if we are not open and honest about the fact that you know plural diverse multicultural societies have their dark side as well right there are are really difficult aspects you know honor killings do happen so-called honor killings whatever you want to call it you know forced marriages you know female genital mutilation does happen grooming gangs do exist uh, a lot of this does actually happen. Our unwillingness on, on the left, and I consider myself to be a part of the left, our unwillingness to want to confront that and want to look at that leaves the playing field open for the extreme right to manipulate and to make use of those stories for their political gain. So
0: how would you suggest that... the that- people that don't belong to the extreme right approach specifically the issue. Just be honest,
1: be honest, be honest and admit that it's happening. But the thing is, our, our intentions on the left are... We actually want to make this work, but I think the All mistake right. that the left often makes is that the left often looks at minority communities as only victims, as only victimized. And we're so afraid of racism that we think that, well, because this great big evil of racism exists means that there is no oppression. Or, and even if there is oppression, let's just sort of pretend like it's not there that exists within minority communities as well. You know, I mean the thing is minority communities are no different than the major than the majority population. There are wonderful people, there are incredibly difficult uh, violent, horrible, horrible people that exist in any community. So in, in a way, I find that sort of a racist view as well, yeah. this, this kind of you know, view of, well, no, you're just sort of pathetic victims of your own sort of cultures and your own sort of thing. You can't really help it, can you, you brown black people, right? So I find that on the left. And then on the right, the intention, however, is to use these issues that, that are really unpleasant as a way to divide us. Is it so, so we have to take those conversations back and we have to be open and honest about these conversations do because you, we want to live together. Dear, Sorry. Do you think that... Coffee. Uh, you shouldn't uh, have given me coffee. That's part of the problem.
0: Dear, do you think that um, the, the liberal progressive ideology, the liberal progressive mainstream have failed in addressing these issues partly because there is no solid intention to create a fairer society that in fact, it's a kind of insipid movement in the main. I'm not talking about, you know, individuals that are sort of activists and are directly involved in social justice or whatever less um, sort of tainted term you would use. But I feel that uh, for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, working class people, you know, regardless of color, but it seems that the rise of ethno the rise of ethno nationalism would suggest that white people, perhaps in particular, have felt left behind and let down by the parties that were established to support their rights and needs. The labor party. In this country, the Democrats in America, and the same way as the neglect or unwillingness to address sort of extreme, unpleasant criminal abuse issues, such as the grooming gangs, has led to that territory being claimed by the right—a uh, a failure to address the economic needs of the majority of people, the very people who laid down their lives or whose families laid down their lives to establish these nation states, who were required economically for like a you know since the industrial revolution who were no longer required and are now being discarded you know does a lot of the blame for the rise of the right lay in the hands of progressive people yeah it does huh
1: i'm really sorry to say i think so because i think if we hadn't let down our sort of natural constituency which which you know is the working class which is the poor which is you know, the disenfranchised, the people you know, on the margins, the, the, the people who, who are struggling to kind of hang on to a, a dignified life. Um, I feel like we've handed those people over to the Trumps of the world. We've handed those people over to the, to the Nigel, Nigel Farage's of the world. And I think that's on us rather than on the people, you know, I mean, you know, the deplorables and whatever all these kind of Mm. terms that people have been using about this, this group of people, I think is actually disgusting. And I think it's counterproductive. I think, again, I think that the the economic, social and political grievances that a lot of people have within the poor and the the working class communities, both in this country and also in America are absolutely legitimate. And I think the fears and insecurities and the growing inequalities, that are absolutely apparent, I think, you know, we on, on the left and on the progressive side are not addressing globalization, uh, the, the the way our economic systems are structured are are detrimental to a lot of people. They're only benefiting a very, very tiny, tiny group of people yes, yes. in our societies. And unfortunately, you know, groups like this are completely in th- their feelings are legitimate the their, their sense of alienation and grievances absolutely and vulnerability and insecurity is absolutely legitimate. But the way that they're choosing to to sort of uh, express those grievances and to to make an other and place all the blame on Muslims, on immigrants and on on all these other people as opposed to on the system that is absolutely underpinning those inequalities, wow. I think is a great shame.
0: So and, the- and that's
1: our, I think, failure.
0: They say what you would agree that their the feelings are legitimate but yeah. the targets are erroneous.
1: Yeah. Now, and and this is the conversation going back to good old Jeff again. This good is old good old Jeff, the the, the conversation. The commander. the commander, exactly. The 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 conversation, the reason that we spoke for five hours instead of one hour was that we kept talking about this. And I kept saying to him, Look, can you see that the immigrant man or the Muslim man that you believe is your enemy, can you understand that he's actually in the same boat as you? Do you understand that the that the low that the that the low wages, that the that the terrible working conditions, that the lack of rights, workers' rights, the lack of a dignity dignified or the prospects of a dignified life. He is robbed of just as much as you. The the fault doesn't lie with that guy. The fault lies with another white guy or the symbol of another white guy, which is Donald Trump. you you have more in common with the immigrant man?
0: i'm not jeff no 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 no, no, i'm a nice lad from essex you know and and he agreed how could he not now dear what do you think it's a coincidence that the potentially the most um, mobile and potentially aggressive aspects of uh, our domestic community you could say sort of like uh, you know far-right extremists or white nationalists white working class movements and uh Muslim communities and that sort of the young men at the beginning of our conversation we talked about how uh, sort of young Muslim men are attracted to sort of violent groups that are like violent groups and white working class men are attracted to white violent groups do you think it's a coincidence that these two groups have very similar feelings very similar grievances are behaving in similar ways find that their anger and rage is directed at one another um, when you know you just said that the systems that underwrite the problem actually benefits from that polarity and sort of tribal adversity
1: you know I think I think on the surface it seems like these groups are opposed to each other but the reality is as much as there is this sort of co radicalization happening between groups like that I think their real enemy is actually not each other their enemy on both sides is actually people like us people who want to get along people who want to live together people who want to actually make this work i think that's the real enemy and that's why you're seeing people like me targeted people you know people who are trying to to articulate and also trying to sort of practice the fact that we are in this together we do have we don't have a choice but to make this work we, we, we you know we we, we This all belongs to all of us, the good and the bad, and we have to sort of figure out a way to make that work. I think those types of people are the enemy, you know, ISIS, Daesh, whatever, you know, they even had this, you know, uh, article come out um, talking about the gray zone, how the gray zone is sort of their absolute target and the gray zone is the people in between. They need the far right. They need Trump. That's a fantastic recruitment tool for them and vice versa. Right. But when Brian Culpepper or Ken Parker meets a Muslim who looks like me and who behaves in in the way that I behaved with these guys, you know, with empathy and with a willingness to listen and a willingness to really, really understand that breaks with all the stories that they've been telling themselves of the other of we are on opposite ends of a spectrum. This is a clash of civilizations and actually really it isn't. So they need each other. They're mutually beneficial for each other. They, they, their movements depend on each other, but their actual target, therefore, is actually not each other. It's us. Yes, and which is why we must resist.
0: The extremists, on, so the extremists on uh, in uh, in in the Islamic world are evident and obvious. The extremists in ethno nationalism, we know them by their torches and their marches. But for me, I'm interested in power yeah. and where power lies and who benefits from the situation staying as it is. And as you just said, you know, like the the sort of extreme Muslim groups need Trump, and Trump needs extreme Muslim groups. They benefit one another. Um. So, but uh, we live in a time where sort of a lot, like where sort of I I feel that power is concealed, and that the that a, a political situation that is becoming more polarized suits the powerful. It means that they can continue to operate unimpeded can you envisage through the films that you've made through the kind of work that you do that sort of seemingly ingrained uh, prejudices uh, can be uh, challenged undone you've seen it happen on an individual basis do you think it can happen more broadly
1: I think so I mean I think if 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 the films prove anything and and mind you this is not necessarily a view that I ha- had before I started the films. I was actually quite pessimistic when I started the films. I, I-, I thought that, you know, it's, it's people like these are just monsters and, and you know, it, it is what it is. And we're just going to have to accept that a certain portion of, pop- of our populations are like that. And let's just move along and concentrate on the rest. In the process of making the films, I've come to realize that human connection is absolutely necessary. Uh, And that hope is possible, change is possible. And I mean, this 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 word hope is very important to me. I Mm. I think it's something that I I always look for in all the films that I make. I'm not interested in just telling horror stories. I'm not interested in in only shining a light on the problems that we have. Mm. I also want to look at potential for solutions and sort of where hope resides. Hope to me is power. And the reason I say that hope is power is any time any system or any leader or, or, you know, tyrant or abuser wants to break us as individuals or as a group of people, the thing that they want to do away with is hope. Because Mm -hmm. once you once you rob a person or a people of hope, then any kind of desire to resist, any kind of desire to change things and to dream of something better, something else, goes away so therefore to me hope is power hope therefore is an act of defiance hope is an act of resistance and i've seen it up close and personal with human connection i do see these glimmers of hope in a lot of these people that something else is possible if we are willing to engage with each other it's very easy to condemn people like this whether it be you know the muslim extremists or the you know ethno-nationalists um it's very easy to sort of pat ourselves on the back and feel very self-righteous about uh. excluding people like that and patting ourselves on the back for having all the right opinions and having all the, the, the correct politics. Um, uh. But these groups thrive on accepting people who are broken, who are fucked up, who are messed up, who are making mistakes, who who are who are looking for something. And so... I feel that we can't fall into that trap of, of excluding. I think we have to become more accepting of people and be willing to build human connections. And yes, it's on an individual basis, but we all can do a little bit and it does matter. It really does matter. You know, the tiniest acts of kindness actually mean something to people.
0: So in the end, what, what you um, refer to are kind of spiritual principles or the would more latterly be termed humanistic yeah. principles, kindness, being a, a nice person, etc. Um, what is your own relationship with Islam? What, is it, you identify as a Muslim woman. I've seen you on interviews and stuff. What, what do you mean by that? And can you it, perhaps... Um, explain to me your perspective on terms like moderate muslim extreme muslim like who sets where these lines are drawn between moderate and extreme
1: I, I i don't know who sets the lines i i mean it at the moment it seems like you know the 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 media the kind of this big term media seems to define that i mean i think Look, there is tremendous, tremendous amount of diversity that exists within mm. the, the Islamic world. Because
0: it's 1.5 billion.
1: Yeah, even, even a bit more than that. And it's, and it's, you know, it's Islam, the way that it is practiced, the way that it is manifest, manifest itself in, in our day-to-day life, the way it's lived and experienced is as diverse as there are Muslims. Right. So so there is no one way. And I think what Western people or people who don't know Muslims very well, it's the trap that they I see, you know, walking into time and time again is the trap that extremists try to set as well, which is to try and say that there is only one Islam. There is only one way of, of expressing your, your religiosity or your spirituality. And it is bound by these very, very rigid, very, very harsh lines. And the reality is your average Muslim doesn't, doesn't fall into any of that. Mm. So, so, you know, it's people have said to me when I did the jihad film, they said, oh, you're just trying to excuse uh, jihadis. You're just trying to, you know, th- th- normalize their violence and their viciousness and their this, that and the other. And I keep saying to people, you know, why are you trying to, why are you only looking at the emotional and the psychological reasons and the social reasons why people do this? Why aren't you addressing the fact that actually the problem is Islam? It's nothing else. It's just Islam. And my answer to that is if Islam was the only problem, there's 1.56 billion Muslims walking around this planet. If the only qualification you need to have to be a terrorist is to be a Muslim, none of us would survive. We'd all be dead by now because we'd all be blown up.
0: Do you... Think that there's an attempt to establish a kind of idea uh, of what Islam should be, even in the eyes of people that wouldn't uh, present themselves as being radical or particularly prejudiced, i.e., you are a good version, you're not wearing a scarf, you're not being particularly sort of, uh, you know, you're not talking in Arabic, you know, like, so, uh, you know, like, even for moderate people, whereas, like, then it, it, as it creeps along this presumed scale, you get people that wear sort of. A religious dress and then at the far end of it there's people like in your documentaries that are saying burn the atheists mm-hmm. you know like this scale is this a real scale is it helpful so speak to me why why do you dress uh in western clothes and do you think, and what can we read into uh men and women who do choose to wear religious dresses as a marker of uh I don't know. Uh, do you think that's something we can use it to as a sort of test, a visual test? I
1: don't think so. I, I think, I think it's it's a bit frustrating. It's frustrating that the that the marker of someone's spirituality or kind of inner life is judged by a piece of cloth or or the length of your beard. You know, you you wear a beard now too. You know, so yeah. it's it's you know. I, I think the diversity that exists amongst Muslim people is vast and I think to try to pigeonhole it or to try to simplify it and to try to flatten it into one thing or one spectrum I think does a disservice to Muslims and it does a disservice to the people who are looking at Muslims. I mean I think what we need is just like white people or non Muslims are wonderful and horrible in their entire spectrum of what it means to be a human being. Muslims are just like that. Whether you wear a Scarf, or you don't. Whether you're a Hasidic Jew, or you're a, you're a you know whatever, you're you're Bill Maher or the whoever, all these other you know people are. It's it's why we're not allowing Muslims to have this incredible wide yes, right. spectrum of what it means to be. Do you think a
0: me saying to you, "Why don't you wear a scarf?" is the same as you saying to me, "Why don't you wear a suit?" Is it like is it a question that should be no more loaded than that? Like why do you why am I not choosing to wear think, the uniform of a?
1: I I think it's loaded in the sense that if 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 you think or if other you know people think that because I'm a Muslim woman, I need to be wearing a scarf. That means that the fundamentalists and the extremists have actually gained more ground than people like me and, and the vast majority of Muslims. Because it means that they're getting to set the premise, they're getting to set the definitions, they're getting they they are getting more airtime than people like the rest of us. Yeah. they're getting to define yeah. what those boxes and those categories are.
0: That is a trend in media it, that it, the it extremes is. do get m- more airtime because it's more interesting, it's more dramatic, it and media requires drama. But do you think that uh, sort of uh, uh, that in general, Muslim, British Muslims don't care whether or not women have wear religious dress in the general? The majority
1: don't. Right. The majority actually don't. The, some, some fam- I mean, I come from one family. I mean, just just let's look at only my father's family. He's incredibly eccentric, incredibly liberal, bit of a hippie, a bit weird. Then his his father was, you know, one of the most religious people in Norway. He helped build several of the mosques there. My oh, no. father, you know, so so there were uh, protests when the Rushdie affair happened. Mm. My grandfather. Uh, was in the protest that burned the book that oh, wow. were anti-Rushdie, and then my father was in the tiny march that was, you know, in in favor of you know people getting to say whatever they want to say, whether they agree with Rushdie or not. But you know the freedom of expression. That's so just in one family, that that spectrum of diversity exists. So that
0: so if we Did make that cause problems for them that no. disagreement, they just when they got home they no. travel to the march together. No. You go to your bit, I go to my bit. No, but look, it's it's what
1: I don't understand is why Muslims are being made into something special or something different from the rest of the population. You have Americans who have who who are democrats and in the same family you might have an uncle or a grandmother or a mother who voted for Trump. Similarly in England, you've got you know incredibly progressive, very, very liberal, you know, British people, and then some of their family members, you know, voted for Brexit. So so why that is so weird when it comes to Muslims, it doesn't make any sense. We have to allow Muslims the same spectrum of what it means to be a human being and what it means to have a variety of political and social and religious manifestations. Of course, we do. Thank
0: you for explaining that so well. James Baldwin would say, of course, that the sort of the dominant culture needs to establish a sort of a shadow identity uh, in order to designate their own. unconscious flaws in in the case of james baldwin he was talking about the creation of the category of negro in order that the white population would have a depository for their own inverted commas darkness ugliness toil sexuality and if you look at the characterization of the other frequently uh, those uh, traits uh, uh, are, are the ones that are attribute, attributed to it. So I, I would say, I mean, you know, and this is as a, a, a white English person, that it seems that there is a necessity to create and decorate the other in order to maintain a degree of, if not stability, manageability within the sort of your core population. And I think the problems we're experiencing now is the last twenty or thirty years, the neo, uh, the li- neoliberal project abandoned the, the economic issues in favour for super. In, in my opinion, somewhat superficial identity politics. I'm sure it doesn't feel superficial if you've been granted, you know, the right to get married if you previously didn't have that right or the, you know, whatever, you know, I'm not sort of being dismissive of civil rights, obviously hugely, hugely important issue. But the the uh, abandon of the... Is, uh, the abandonment of uh, an economic underclass, I think, is unforgivable and has, has led to the conditions that we're currently experiencing. It
1: is it is unforgivable. It is absolutely ugly. And, and, and it is why we're seeing this wave of populism wash wash across Europe, wash across America. And I think, I think absolutely there is truth to what you're saying and, and what James Baldwin said as well, which is there is this need. If we as a society and we as individuals are unwilling to look at and confront our own darkness which is hard you know it's, it's and you know this i know this it's difficult to to accept your own flaws and to look at your own ugliness and and to to really grapple with that mm-hmm. uh, and also to forgive yourself for that right it's it's hard but so it's much easier to take all of that and bundle it and, and sort of push it onto somebody else and say, well, actually, no, you're like that. I'm not like that. I'm glorious, I'm fine, I'm this, I'm that. I'm disenfranchised, I'm alienated, but really all the ugliness, that's 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 your bag. I, I you know, designate that to you. So it's, it's expedient, it's politically uh, convenient. I think it is also emotionally easier to do that rather than to look at yourself, but I think and i think we're doing that with you know muslims are kind of the the the, the latest uh you know boogeyman you know what i mean that's that's just the latest villain and and, and enemy that we've yes. crafted and tomorrow it'll be something else in the past it was the russians
0: yes on a geopolitical level you're quite right that the, the sort of the cold war was a, sort of a necessary form of control and evidently a political reality for sort of you know but years but it's false it though in in a sense but but the sort of in a way the cultural collision between the christian world and the islamic world has there's some like real history of there conquest and, yeah, and conflict there. there is
1: but the reality was destruction The reality was bloodshed, the reality, but also, I mean, also beauty. When cultures come together, of course, there is, you know, there's a conflict, but very often there's also a merger of ideas, a merger of, of cultures and thoughts and ideas and progress that then is also possible as a result of it. I think where we stand right now, I think we... I keep saying this, we have to find a way to live together. And and I think, despite all of these dynamics, it's about, you know, p- our politicians keep using words like integration, uh, what's the other thing that they all keep saying, assimilation, like all this kind of stuff, to me, all of this comes down to human relationships.
0: Yeah, it does. It does ultimately. Everything's passing through the psyche of individual human beings. That's quite true. Now, but if we are to live together, my sense is, I'm just making this up as I go along, that the extremists aren't going to be the problem. It's the... It's the rest of us. That's going to be the challenge. Yes.
1: and, And I think because our political leaderships have been impotent when it comes to articulating a vision of the future Mm. that includes all of us, where where we are willing to confront the economic, the political, the the social uh, alienation that so many people face, and also the the answers and the solutions to some of that, you know, I mean, you, you look at austerity. Uh, policies. I mean, which has been absolutely devastating to to the vast majority of people in this country, immigrant or, or white or you know whatever. So I think because they've 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 been so terrible at f- figuring out how we do this, I think it's down to the rest of us. The truth is, it's difficult to have relationships. It's difficult to have relationships with people that you like, yeah, and people that you want to be in a relationship with. Even that's difficult. So but the difference is and, and, you know, on a societal level, we've all been sort of thrust together and expected to figure out how to do this. There's no support. There's no conversation. There's no nothing there to help us figure this out. You have huge populations of people thrust into rural towns and, and various places and. Integrate. Why don't you figure it out? If if you're a brown person, you're you you know you're not being English enough, you're not learning the language enough, you're not this, you're not that. If you're a white working class person, oh my god, you're just a racist, you don't like these refugees. But Mm. the reality is we have to there's been no one's articulated the fact that we have we're in this relationship together, and we're going to have to commit to each other because that's the difference in relationships that you have in your personal life, you've made a commitment to make it work. Even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient, even when it is unpleasant, you've made a commitment to make it work. On a larger scale, we've not made a commitment to each other between different communities to make it work. So we have to.
0: You're quite right, I agree with you. I wonder sometimes if it's because we're being asked to make commitments on a scale that's impossible for human beings. I mean this anthropologically. If if it is challenging for a group of 75 people to organise their resources fairly, how can groups of 60 million or 300 million organise their resources fairly? When we talk about this ideal of yours, which uh, only a fool would disagree with, of us coming together, living together harmoniously, when I think about what the obstacles are, I less and less think it's people with torches or flags ranting on the periphery and more the genuine powers at the heart of our culture, which are imperial, economic, capitalist powers who require, as we've touched upon numerous times throughout our conversation, polarity of ordinary people regardless of background or colour in order to maintain their own power structures. So, in a sense, my sort of giddy, personal, radical, wet dream is to somehow unify... uh, radical yes. muslim extremists ethno nationalists and to recalibrate and refocus their attention on the on the truly powerful right, you know when i have conversations and i'm you know taking a leaf from your book i'm going to be having conversations from people like uh, uh, with more extreme nationalist views yeah yeah like, the thing that I'm going to, the kind of conversations that I'm going to, like, find myself having, you know, and I'd like, in a sense, I'm asking you this more for research than anything else. When they say no, it is, like, Asian grooming gangs is particular to Islam. This is especially and particularly a Muslim problem. How will I counter that argument? I mean, obviously. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, no, there's pedophiles everywhere, and there's like pedophile gangs in sort of throughout in the aristocracy, in the media. Like that's the sort I mean, of first thing I'm going to say. Well, and, and you don't. Else?
1: Well, there's you don't even have to go that far. You don't even have to go to the aristocracy. You can just look at you know the English Defence League itself has had several. I mean, even. As, as recent as a couple of weeks ago, a man was convicted, I think for 17 years or something like that in, in the kind of higher realms of, of the EDL for having abused, I think, a nine or a 10 year old girl for a really, really long time. So to me, I mean, this is kind so of a different conversation from misogyny and, and when it comes to the abuse of women, and male abuse of power and male violence is something that is not the monopoly of Muslim men. That's not to to to, to say that Muslim men are free of that and we should excuse and pardon that and, and they're just victims of the system or anything like that. They're absolutely responsible for that. But misogyny is something that is absolutely prevalent throughout our societies. I come from Norway. Even Norway, when it comes to violence against women, it is ex excruciatingly high when it comes to that and it comes to women who are losing their lives at the hands of their their white partners. So if you can point me to a country where violence against women and children doesn't exist, I'd be very happy to plant a flag and clap and say, look, here's the example. These people have managed to, to really get rid of it. It is something that is endemic absolutely everywhere. Doesn't excuse that Muslim men or men of color are engaging in it, but it's something that we... Brian Cul- Culpepper, in uh, again, the, the neo-Nazi in America who's now left, he kept looking at me saying, oh, grooming gang's grooming, and I wanted to tear my hair out and his uh, for saying that because I kept looking-
0: Presumably look- he was a skinhead.
1: No, actually, he hadn't shaved his head. I don't know why. Um, but, you know, he kept, he kept going on about this and he kept going, oh, you know, look at you English people and you're doing this and you're letting these Muslims get, in, get away, getting away with this and blah, blah, blah. And I kept going, look, if you care about Muslim women or women's rights as much as you claim to, there are thousands of women in America who are being destroyed and exterminated by white American or any kind of men in your country. Why are you so obsessive about the Muslim men? If you cared about women's rights, you would be dealing with women's rights and violence against women on the wider spectrum, the entire spectrum. I work personally on on violence against women and and on women's rights issues in the rest of my life, basically, other than making films. That's a huge, huge passion for me. To me, I work against any man, any group uh, that is Uh, inflicting violence on women and children. I don't care if you're white. I don't care if you're Muslim. I don't care if you're Jewish. I don't care if you're a Catholic priest. You need to be held to account. And the woman and the child who is on the receiving end of it, their rights need to be absolutely protected and their voices need to be absolutely believed. So I don't make a distinction. Why do you only care when the perpetrator is the other man? And similarly, you see in the Muslim side of things as well, you'll see a lot of Muslim men who will be saying, look at white American soldiers who are raping our women in Afghanistan, who are raping our women in Iraq. And you sort of go, when rape happens by a white man, you suddenly are a women's rights activist. Suddenly you care.
0: I understand. So it's sort of like a confirmation bias on either side. It's a convenient Mm -hmm. way of validating existing prejudice by pointing to truly horrific transgressions and using them to bolster a pre-existing ideology of hatred. Well, uh,
1: somehow your violence is okay because the other guy does it too.
0: But, yes, or (laughs) their violence is worse. And also at an international level, types of violence are considered necessary. Types of violence are considered rational, expedient, whereas other types of violence are wacky, religious, crazy. It just
1: depends on which side of the equation you're on, yes.
0: Do you believe in God?
1: Yeah. I believe in love. Mm.
0: Yeah. So have...
1: so I, I, I use the word love even more than I use the word God. Right. Because, because to me, that's what it
0: actually means. Because it m- means a kind of a unity of purpose and a yeah. sort of benevolent oneness. Yeah. How do you think that these ideas can be popularized? And do you think that these ideas can be politicized and potent?
1: They are. They already are. And, and how do you popularize it? I think the fact that somebody like you um, does this. And I think that somebody like you, I said this to you when I walked in as well, you know, you don't have to do this. You can very comfortably do whatever it is that you do and be, you know, comfortable, deal with your own kind of, you know, spirituality and your own practice. And, and that's fine. And your way of accomplishing change in the world is just by you yourself appearing in the world in, in the kind of best sort of manifestation of yourself as, as you can. And that in itself is is changing the world, right? But you're choosing to go beyond that. You're choosing to to speak about issues that are difficult to speak about. You're choosing to engage with people who are difficult to engage with. You're choosing to ask questions that are uncomfortable and unpleasant, but necessary. So I think how we move the conversation forward is everyone doing their version of that if they can. You know, at the same time I don't believe that we should sort of pressurize people or make people feel guilty or burdened by, you know, you have to do this otherwise we're all screwed. You know, it's people contribute in the way that they can contribute. And if you just smile to a person, if if you don't clutch on to your purse when a young Somali boy walks onto the bus, and instead, look at him and actually acknowledge him and nod and smile. That in itself is you've changed the dynamic in the world a little bit. So, so I think I think people underestimate the the individual responsibility and the individual acts of kindness. Do yeah, do you not? They do.
0: Well, partly, Al, I would say that we live in a time that places so much responsibility. Thanks for those lovely things you said about me, by the way. That, that replaces too much responsibility. On the individual, that we are told that, uh, uh, you know, like, I guess we are given these roles in life as consumers. We're, we're operating within quite narrow parameters. I think what you said about hope is very important that a lot of people just don't believe that change is possible. And when I think about why I continue to engage in conversation, I have a, and what we were talking about prior to our recorded conversation, I have as you clearly do a belief in the optimum in the in the that there is an ulterior reality that's trying to realise itself through the consciousness of human beings that's inviting us to overcome our personal darkness and to build systems and connections based on the beautiful aspects of our nature as opposed to the darker aspects of our nature when we are culturally encouraged to focus on ourselves and our competitiveness and our darkness and our lust and our fear We live in a culture that promotes these values. So you are right. In a sense, we have to discard the way that you did when I was asking you about Muslim justice, which still didn't give me really the kind of answer I wanted of like, oh, why don't you wear a scarf or hijab or that kind of thing? Still would have liked a bit of a clearer answer about that. Uh, Because it's
1: not necessary. Oh. The, the fact that you think that that is something that I, I, I should or that that's something that might be an obligation. Do you
0: even care about it? Do you care if women do or don't? No, of course it's not. To no, you. of course
1: not. I mean, I, I run a magazine, you, uh, you know, wh- where we are constantly support. I mean, it's set up with the purpose of of showing the, the wide variety of, of Muslim experiences and Muslim women's experiences that exist in the world. And in that, you know, we are publishing articles of, of women who are not just, you know, hi- wear hijabs, but also wear niqabs and you know, women who write things that I personally disagree with. But that's the whole point. You have to allow people the full expression of what it means to be a human being to that person. And if that means having your hair out, that means having whatever type of politics. It means loving whoever that you want to love that means all all of that doesn't matter our our job is to or my job I feel in whatever tiny ways that I can is to try and support people and facilitate an environment where people can flourish and be themselves as fully as possible regardless of what that means and regardless of whether I approve of it or not and whether I think it's right or not but I also ask for that same courtesy sort of Uh, For myself, Mm. you know, it's why I have to qualify myself as a as a as a Muslim uh, through having to wear a hijab or having to look like this or hold this belief or that belief is is sort of uh, is sort of irrelevant. (laughs) It's 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 uh, I am what I am. And similarly, there are the the it's complex people are complicated and we have to allow for people to be complicated why do we have to fit them into these nice neat boxes just for our own satisfaction you know these nazis i had all these opinions about them very neat little boxes of you know they're just this they're just that they're just this and shouldn't they just this or that and they don't People are people have many layers to them and and to only define them by their 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 visual or, or, or their you know, any kind of superficial uh, symbols, I think is is reducing somebody's humanity. All the work that I do is about is actually about recognizing ourselves in each other. It is to try and locate the humanity in someone else, not so much, to find their humanity but it's actually in in an attempt to hold on to my own. Oh wow. You know, and it's and, and that's important. And and I've said this many times and people kind of roll their eyes at this, but you know, it's I refuse as a woman of color as a, you know, the long laundry list of, you know, the things that I consider myself to be. I know what it feels like to be stereotyped. I know what it feels like to be dehumanized. And because of because of that, I refuse to do that to somebody else even if that means a Nazi because if I am willing to dehumanize somebody else, then there's no difference left. Mm. And and that's what I'm kind of working against, is this kind of simplification of people, this kind of caricature of, of people for, for my convenience. It's not supposed to be convenient. It's supposed to just be messy and wonderful and complicated. It's supposed to just be human. And that's the battle, isn't it? the whole challenge, the whole thing is about recognizing that I can see myself in you and vice versa and there's something in that and once we can recognize that it becomes harder for me to harm you and to hurt you or to exercise violence against you and this is why on a bigger level, why our politicians encourage us to dehumanize each other is so that violence becomes possible it is so that we can strip each other of, of our rights. It is so that we can become reduced just to a consumer or just to a voter. You know, we're not just anything. We're not just a hijab. We're not just a woman or just, you know, a, 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 a famous guy who's trying to do a podcast. You know, y- there's more to you than that. There's more to me than that. There's more to the Nazis than that. There's more to the jihadis than that. So the more we can get underneath all the noise and, and the kind of static to the real heart, to the real, the, the heartbeat of it, the closer we get to solutions. And, and, you know, it's, we can't afford, we can't afford to give up on each other is how I feel. It's, it's, it's we're all in this together. And I think if we, give up any, if we give up on each other, then we're also giving up on ourselves. And I think then we're handing over, you speak about power, you're about power, you're about power, me too. If we do that, then we're handing over our power. And I refuse to do that. I spoke to, I do a lot of work with women's rights activists all around the world, and in particular in, in with women from Muslim-majority countries. And again, people in the West would constantly like to cast us as victims and as poor, pathetic women who are being abused and this, that, and the other. But what I have found amongst a lot of these women who I consider to be my mentors, who I consider to be my my complete inspiration is even in the darkest, darkest environments, they're able to hold on to light. They're able to hold on to resistance. They're able to smile. They're able to love. They're able to laugh and they're able to just do politics times 10. And I asked one of them, uh, Hina Jilani is her name. And I remember asking her, you know, why why are you hopeful you know why why are you such an optimist and she said she said because we don't have the luxury of pessimism Mm. and i think that's true and to me if women like that in circumstances that seem impossible and odds that seems completely stacked against them are able to hold on to their humanity. And they're constantly, some of the women that I work with are, are working to bring their boys back from ISIS and from various militias to try and, and reintegrate them back into life and realize that jihad is not about spilling blood, it's about giving blood at a hospital. If women like this exist, when they've got everything against them, then because I asked you this, why do you do the things that you do? The reason I do it is I was lucky enough to be born in a, cl- uh, in a country like Norway. And I'm lucky enough to, to live in a place like the UK for all of its faults and all of its stuff. I could, have been born in, I could have been born a girl in Afghanistan. And I think with all the privilege that I have and all the advantages that I have here, surely it's part of my responsibility to do something useful with that. Otherwise, what good is it if it's just for me? If only I get to breathe and I get to be free and I get to do what I want to do, what good is it if the woman next to me is bleeding? What good is it?
0: So privilege, you, uh, good rant. Privilege (laughs) is, um, you see, as a duty. It's
1: a responsibility. Mm. You have to do something about it.
0: Have you any thoughts about how men and women can relate to one another more positively in this time that s- seems to be seeing bifurcation and polarity between the genders?
1: I think masculinity has to be reimagined. I think what it means to be a man, the fact that the associations to that has become about dominance and violence and power, um, the fact that men. some men anyway, seek their sense of self through, um, through those things. I think we have to reimagine what it means to be a man. We have to reimagine what masculinity means. And I think we have to liberate men from the very, very tiny, tiny, incredibly narrow, destructive boxes that they get to operate within. And I think we have to make it okay for men to feel things and to articulate their feelings and to say, and this is why I appreciate what you, again, I appreciate what you do, because again, you being in the position that you are and you being as open and willing to be vulnerable and willing to admit that, oh my goodness, you do have feelings, (laughs) you know, I think is so important for young men to see, because I think we constantly talk about women being at the receiving end of toxic masculinity, but I think toxic masculinity is also killing men. So Mm -hmm. I think we need to liberate men from that as well. So how do we do that is I think we have to speak about it as much as possible. And we have to make young men understand that the liberation of women is not and feminism is not just about women. It's actually about equalizing the sort of playing field and also liberating men from yes. the, this cage.
0: Yes. Uh, liberation for men from the inner and outer yes. roles that they have been granted, which ultimately I would say are roles that are prescribed by the powerful that bloody hell you no so like we were meant to i think this has gone on for substantially longer than was intended yeah every okay. so often and i don't trouble you with this kind of detail people <laughs> would hold up like a thing saying like oh, it's eighty minutes. minutes it's 90 oh, minutes God. now and it continues but I, I think you've done such incredible work already and i'm fascinated to see the work that you will continue to do and I hope that I can be of some help to you.
1: Does it make sense what I'm saying?
0: No, I think you might be mentally ill. <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> Thank
0: you. <laughs> no, of course it makes sense what you're saying. I, I think it's- do you, but do you believe that it's
1: doable? Do you believe that what I'm saying that on an individual level is how we start... And, and, and building solidarity between people yes, across dear. their differences. Yes, I think that the
0: beginning has to be non-judgment while, yeah. being, while being personally discerning. I also believe that we have to have a relationship with the transcendent, which you seem to understand. I think that perhaps the primary problem is we de- to define ourselves by uh, outward uh, and material ideals. I think that if we can start to challenge them, we, we can start to break down identity and reform identity. I'm not talking about some sort of post-modern no, no, nightmare no. where no one knows what England is anymore. I'm saying as it was you suggested in your very first controversial inciting interview that we have to reimagine states that includes all of us, the best version of all of us. And I think it's this uh, obliteration of hope to which you continually refer that is an important factor that we need to reignite re-endow encourage people once more to believe in a new vision one thing i did want to pick you up on was when you spoke about politicians and their visions you sort of spoke of it in the abstract and in fact your body language was you placed it over there somewhere and i think that possibly the responsibility lies with us that the the time for abstract leadership particularly within bodies that as we now know sort of operate primarily at the behest of corporate interests you know with the uh um excluding one or two no- you know notable exceptions i
1: think the extremes are actually reacting to exactly what you're saying i think the extreme that the the all these kind of convulsions that we're seeing on the fringes of our societies is an actual reaction to the fact that we've been reduced down to consumers we're being reduced down to all these incredibly dehumanizing labels and i think their attempts are actually noble and in a in and in a kind of. It's a bit uncomfortable for me to even say this or feel this but I think some of their intentions are actually noble. Well, in they're, that they're fighting in, in even in, extremists. Well, yeah, and, and and in the you know that their intentions are actually about love, believe it or not. It's actually not hate that drives them. I know we keep talking about hate when we're speaking about people like that, but it's actually love and loyalty for each other and for a, a future that they believe is better. They don't want to. They are kind of the the collateral damage of global globalization. Of, of kind of this consumer hyper extreme capitalist system as well. And so they're trying to create more meaning and, and to become powerful instead of powerless. They want to matter because they don't. And also as a culture, we only, you have to, you know, sort of think that the only time we reward these guys with our attention mm. is when they do horrible things. So they matter to us when they commit crimes. Sorry, they're telling you.
0: That was 95 minutes. Dear. There you that's, go. That's it. We don't even have a sign for that. Sorry. Someone had to make a new Someone sign. Had to, okay. People <laughs> had to amalgamate the 5 and the 90 signs. never been used before. We're in completely new go. territory. History. Unimagined realms. <laughs> History itself has been it's made. Being made. But nonetheless, yeah. I just want to do these quick... Could you mind if I ask you these quick questions, which we may be able to use for clips and stuff because they're more to do with contemporary issues. Um, okay, so we talked about Tommy Robinson and Asian grooming gangs, and you were extremely passionate, weren't you? That's inspired one of your gr- greater rants, one among many in the league table of dear rants that I've been uh, constructing. Is Donald Trump a real threat to Muslims and minorities in America? Yes. How?
1: Uh, Because he is dehumanizing anyone who doesn't fit into his vision of what it means to be an American and what it means to be a citizen. And I think his continuous um, uh, reduction of people's humanity in this way will ultimately uh, be a recipe for violence.
0: Mm, That's really good and surprisingly succinct. Is wearing a hijab or burqa anti-feminist?
1: I think wearing a hijab uh, can absolutely be feminist. Burqa, I have real, real issues with personally. Why? Um, right. But again, uh, I, you know, well, I am a feminist. But more concealing. Well, the burqa also, I mean, very often it, it also includes a niqab. So it means, you know, only your eyes showing. So I, I have problems with that. Uh, when it comes to hijab, uh, I completely will support women's rights to, to choose that and so to wear it. where's the line
0: then? Where's the cutoff? It's like it's a creeping bit of fabric that's got to be stopped at a certain bit of the the chin, the the mouth.
1: I think, well, I think it's a, a matter of the creeping fabric, but I think it's also a matter of the age of the, the woman. I think, you know, like, I don't believe in compulsory veiling for children. I think that if if, if you are at an age where you can make uh, an informed decision about, you know, your politics and your, your body and how you manifest your, your feminism... In a way,
0: dear, we don't even think that um, the Nazis are making informed decisions. We think they're making misinformed decisions. We think that the jihadists are making misinformed decisions. Like, no one's making informed decisions. People are responding to stimuli that... It's bogus, distracting and misleading. What autonomy is there? What free will is there? What is there except abandon, in fact, of our individual identity <laughs> at the, the sac- to be sacrificed at the altar of some higher ideal called love or God?
1: No, but I I don't think that it's as fluid as that. I I think, you know, (laughs) it's it's, (laughs) you know, but but, you know, you look at Iran, you know, compulsory veiling, you know, it's and 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 if a woman just, you know, lightly loosens her veil, you know, it's 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 a it's a reason for her getting punished, you know, Mm -hmm. violently or or with prison sentences or with social ramifications. Same in Saudi Arabia, you cannot walk out, you know, the 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 kind of uh, conduct uh, that women are expected to expected to uh, participate in is incredibly reductive when it comes to their humanity. So I think it's not as fluid as that, but I do mm. think in Western countries, you know, with so many of my Muslim female friends who do choose to wear the hijab, I absolutely support it. I choose not to. My grandmother didn't use it. My mother doesn't use it but a lot of other women do. They have done in the past and they will continue to in the future. And I support that when it comes to the burqa. For me personally, not so much. Will If a woman sits herself down here right now and says, look, dear, this is my choice. I really feel more comfortable this way. I would say, great. I will fight for your right to do so. But when it comes to three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. Mm. Uh, but can it be feminist? It can be. I don't particularly like... Um, I don't know how many times I'm going to say that but I don't particularly like the burqa as you can Fair probably enough, imagine hey, yeah
0: going on about it yeah what about uh antifa are are antifa as bad as the far right That's,
1: what do you mean by as bad as
0: you know volatile aggressive extremist
1: i do think that uh, uh aspects of the antifa uh are becoming i think there's a co-radicalization going on i think the extreme mm. right and the extreme left are kind of feeding off each other and i do think that in, in and again i think masculinity comes here more than anything else i think in in the attempt to outdo the other end of the spectrum i think both sides are becoming more and more willing to uh to relegate their political views to violent expression uh which i disagree with regardless of which side it comes from but obviously my political leaning is on on the left anyway so i mean i've 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 been a part of kind of the antifa protests in my own life
0: and you got oh, that spray yeah
1: i did I, when but, you but used still, to be a nazi
0: when i <laughs> remember that holiday yeah
1: i remember that one um are they as bad as each other i think it depends on their behavior uh i don't agree with violence no matter who perpetrates it it's good
0: to have some general principles like that isn't it let's not have violence let's let people express yeah. their individuality and uh, up to harming others consent just basic ideas, right? This is good. There are some general principles that we can have. What's that thing? I well, to what's ask that? You? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, the and what's the
1: label saying? Hmm? How have we surpassed our? But
0: people are just setting fire to stuff out there now. They've, they've sort of... gone. Yeah, they're just <laughs> gonna. It's just you and I. People aren't even recording <laughs> exactly. this. We're having this conversation <laughs> exactly. in, in an abyss. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: Hey, this is the thing say when I chatted to Jordan Peterson and he says that um much of the rise of the current wave of feminism and the anger inherent within it is in accordance with a, uh, a archetype known as the Uh, I can't remember the exact sort of uh, uh, the exact archetype but he was saying that it's in accordance with an idea of that sort of a negative female energy like the devouring mother that what we protest against is the sort of like you know that there's the possibility for the positive male the you know benevolent king the cruel king the benevolent mother the cruel mother that we are experiencing not you know people talk a lot about toxic masculinity what about toxic femininity that's a good that's a more succinct way of saying that there is such a thing, minutes. yeah. Do you think so? Toxic femininity? Do you, or, yeah, that's the, my question. I mean, you.
1: I I don't know how that manifests itself. I, I don't know how we're rage,
0: that. Rage, rage, rage against um, the patriarchy. The Patriarchy. In the
1: but how how is that toxic? I mean, it's it's if you are on the receiving end of, of persecution, abuse, violence, oppression, for centuries, then if women dare to be angry for once and not fill the the prescribed boxes of be a good right, girl be coherent. obedient be be you know be be a good girl don't react be polite if women for once get angry at being cut and being brutalized then that's toxic
0: i agree with you so far. it's only hypothetical yeah yeah but what about a minute ago when you just said with uh, muslims we can't have one category that is muslim with 1.5 billion people this the need to uh, to verify the the feminism is that there is such a thing as a woman and that there is such a thing as female oppression couldn't we similarly regard oppression as happening at the level of economics of underclasses that occurs regardless of gender
1: well but it happens because of gender it happens. But but, you, but there are multiple layers of oppression, though. There's not one. Women don't experience oppression just because of their gender. Women also have class. Women also have race. You know, all these other markers aren't just uh, the luxury of men or, or just the identifiers of men. They're also identif- identifiers of women. So women experience all the layers of oppression that, for example, a working class man, a working class woman experiences all the the same uh, forms of oppression that a working class man does, but she has one added form of oppression, which also uh, is assigned to her gender. So uh, a, a a woman can be standing out in in the streets of uh, or Tahrir Square in Egypt, right, fighting against the oppressor against Mubarak at the time, uh, the, the the Arab Spring yeah. when that was going on. She can be standing shoulder to shoulder with her male, you know, the, the, they were demanding for freedom and, and liberty and dignity and bread and, and you know, various other things. But that woman also has the added pressure of being uh, oppressed and abused potentially by her father, brother, husband, partner, that the man doesn't. I also work a lot with uh, artistic freedom and, and artists who are persecuted and imprisoned and tortured and censored for for various reasons women experience all the same things as their male counterparts, female journalists experience the same thing as their, their male counterparts with the added layer of abuse that comes with the fact that you're a woman. I understand this Jordan Peterson thing, I actually only got familiar with him through your work. Yeah. I actually people kept mentioning his name I, I'm you know I'm still not that familiar with him I appreciate the fact that he is try to, trying to speak to something in men yeah. who 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 are really struggling and are really searching for something I really appreciate that and I think it's really important that somebody speak to that However, I don't think that that needs to be at the expense of women and at the expense of women getting to manifest their, their full humanity. It doesn't have to be either or. That's what yeah, I reject. I agree reject. with you,
0: but perhaps then we shouldn't be opposing those arguments by using its binary opposite. Perhaps we should be continually rejecting those terms, those labels. What labels? Female male. You know, I'm not suggesting that we become some kind of no, no, I mist agree. of beingness. But like no, we could that, just be human. We can No, no, just no I be agree human.
1: with you. I agree with you. But I think I think we can try to aspire to the label of human. But the the reason these labels matter in the process of getting to that place is until and until oppression and violence and, and, and abuse of women stops in the name of their gender in the name of because you are a woman you are less than until that stops we don't get to the category of we are all human all women want all feminism is about it's not anti-male it's not we want men to have less rights or we want now it's the time of women and we want women to men to take a back seat it is about liberating us all to just be Yeah, but human. when you
0: speak on behalf of a, rel- a kind of spiritual progressivism, you speak as an individual. When you speak in terms of gender, you speak as if feminism is one unit, when but I imagine is, no. there are possibly different types of feminism. No, it is
1: different. No, no, no. I, I don't speak of it as a unit. I speak more as the general experiences of women across the world, having done the work that I've done. And of course, I, I can only you know be in contact with so many people personally. But in the contact that I have had, it is absolutely undeniable that women are suffering in so many different contexts around the world, whether it comes to equal pay, whether it comes to equal protection under the law, whether it comes to protection from violence, whether it comes from uh, their just basic dignity and human rights.
0: When something is expansive and as global as that, how come, you know, like, obviously I'm a man, and but my sort of most important relationships in my life are with women. They're all of, the, like, so, like, I obviously have a vested interest in the people I love most, yeah. living in a fair and equal... Yeah. Society. Now, presumably, I'm not particularly unique uh, among men. You're not. Other than the charisma and the eyebrows. Let's not rule them out. But like in, in loads of ways, like my no, priorities not. would be the people I love and the people I love are women.
1: And this is where I do have, I mean, I do have arguments with my feminist friends who who basically say, you know, I mean, some of them do say, you know, men are kind of a lost cause, all that kind right. of stuff.
0: Right. so, so, See, so there, there are different types of feminism. No, I'm not
1: saying that there aren't. I'm not saying that there aren't. To me, the goal is that we all get to a place where we are just
0: human. That's got to be the goal. That
1: is the goal. That absolutely is the goal. And that is also the goal of a lot of feminists. Maybe not all, but a lot of feminists, but including you, myself. as a woman, believe including-
0: that one of the areas that most needs to be addressed is gender inequality. And then I, as a man, believe, uh, for some quirky biographical reason, think oh, it's to do with class and oppression that no. happens in early life.
1: No, but it's... I don't believe that it's just got to do with gender. I believe that it's got to do with gender, class, race. Econ- it's got to do with all of it. Yes. That's that's the difference. I'm saying that gender is one more layer of of identity or one more layer of the experience of being a human being that defines what that experience is for for an individual, for a human in the time that we have here. So I'm not saying that it's... Not class, not race, not all of this. it absolutely is, but one more experience is also gender, and I also want to say that you being a man, and like you just said, you know your closest relationships or, or or you know kind of investments in human beings are actually with a lot of women. I think where a lot of feminists uh are struggling or where where we need to do better if if i mean i I don't really like a group thing anyway, but there you go. Uh, if if we have to speak in those terms, I, I think where feminists could do better is to understand that we are only going to win these battles shoulder to shoulder. Yes. It has to be men and women together. It cannot be women will win this battle and men will win this battle and then we'll somehow figure it out together. It's we have to fight together. But you tell me, how do we involve more men? You know, every like when I've been to conferences and, and conversations or whatever about violence against women, the entire room is filled with women. The, the the perpetrator is I male. Reckon,
0: so where is the guy? I reckon it's by you know, like when we talked about James Baldwin a mm. minute ago. Yeah. But it's by reconciling that 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 identity is non-binary, a, sort of a modern gender politics idea. Mm. That that within that you have to liberate the femaleness that is almost like in, a kind of internal Brexit while fifty one percent, you know, wanna leave 49 percent want to stay any man is almost female that we are closer to so reject these terms to liberate the female within yourself to acknowledge that women are the most important people probably in your own life and to not to commodify and objectify other human beings and to look at how look at your own life and see where you do that and, see, and be willing to change a lot of people aren't willing to change I think you can do with anyone who's willing to change who hasn't ossified into a belief system that they use instead of an identity yeah. but I think that that means that both sides of the argument have to, as you said, be willing to stand shoulder to shoulder yeah. willing to reconcile, willing to have a shared vision that's yeah. about creating an ideal as opposed to venting rage
1: yeah. and I mean ultimately the goal, like we said you know, it is about how do we ensure that that people's full humanity and whatever their dreams and their hopes and their their loves and, and, and whatever the, whatever their vision of themselves and their future is, that that gets to manifest manifest itself in its full flourishing, positive, wonderful glory and how do we, how do we do that together? How do we do that without demeaning each other and to me the answer it's sort of in my kind of personal sort of small life has been empathy empathy is kind of one of the most important tools and one of the most instruments I think that we have available to us that we need to deploy in that and and there within that is it's about stories how do we tell stories in a way that we see ourselves in each other where we recognize our humanity in each other where we make it possible for a disenfranchised man to recognize what it might be like to be a woman who is experiencing violence and vice versa. You know, and, and how do we f- and also for us to recognize that a lot of these barriers are sort of um, barriers and divisions, these walls. I mean, Trump keeps talking about building a physical wall. So what but what isn't he's, it that? It's yeah. amazing metaphor. But, but, you know, he's been so successful at building walls between us as human beings already. That wall doesn't, the physical wall doesn't it. exist. He's already being successful in that. So how do we break down those walls? How do we create a more plural, inclusive
0: future? You're an incredible person. I I think that uh, what you are doing by placing yourself among the, the people that you would have the most obvious conflict is a brilliant way of metabolizing our potential to transcend those barriers and boundaries and create connections and ultimately having the optimistic perspective that you clearly have that love is more powerful than hate, that we will get there, that you will never undo hatred with more hatred and that we have to continually reach out in love to the people that we have opposed and certainly those that oppose us dear wow what an incredible conversation that is i feel a little bit like i've taken drugs word drugs
1: <laughs> likewise thank you thank you thank, thank you for your time.